Welcome to Alter Everything, a podcast about data science and analytics culture. Today, we're going to share a special episode that premiered on our other podcast feed, Data Science Mixer, featuring a conversation between our Data Science Mixer host, Susan Curry-Civic, and data science personality, Renee Teat, Director of Data Science at Helio Campus. It's a great episode that we know our Alter Everything listeners will love, and for more Data Science Mixer episodes, just search for Data Science Mixer on your favorite podcast app. So enjoy this episode of Data Science Mixer. Hello, listeners. Do you ever feel like the length of your list of things to learn in data science is rapidly approaching infinity? Data Science Mixer is here to offer some comfort and guide you back towards sanity. I'm excited to share this awesome and motivating interview today that originally debuted as a video session at the Inspired Conference hosted by Alteryx. But this episode is the full and complete version with still more great conversation. Let's jump right in. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today for this special episode of Data Science Mixer, the podcast from Alteryx where we talk to top experts in lively and informative conversations that will change the way you do data science. I'm Susan Curry-Civic, the data science journalist for the Alteryx community. I'm delighted to have with us today Renee Teat, the Director of Data Science for Higher Education Analytics firm Helio Campus. I have to admit that when I think of Renee, I think of her as Data Science Renee or Becoming Data Sci, because that's how she's known on Twitter, where she has shared her journey into a successful data science career. You might also know Renee through her blog and podcast titled Becoming a Data Scientist. I'm excited to hear from Renee all about her career adventures. She'll share what she's learned from her own journey and the wisdom she's gathered from others along the way. I know she'll have fantastic insights that will help all of us continue to advance our own data science knowledge and careers. Renee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I alluded to your data science journey here and your path into your current career and position at Helio Campus. Could you give us kind of the nutshell version of what your career journey has been? Sure. Um, well, when I, I finished um, my undergraduate degree, it was kind of a generalist degree in integrated science and technology. So I had a little bit of background in a lot of different science and math type of courses. And I went to James Madison University and I ended up just doing database design, website design for small businesses. So kind of um, independent consulting. And I realized throughout that, that I really liked the database part of it, um, relational database design. So I started kind of throughout my career, working more and more with databases, uh, becoming a data analyst. And then I think it was about eight years after undergrad, I went back to school and I got a master's degree in systems engineering. So it's another generalist degree. And it ended up being a lot more math than I expected, but it did really teach me a lot about some um, advanced algorithms and things that I, I didn't know about before. And then I saw, taught myself Python and uh, some data science machine learning techniques and then started kind of transitioning from data analyst to data scientist. Very cool. And your current position right now, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'm the director of data science at Helio Campus. So um, I started at Helio Campus uh, about five years ago, and that was my transitional role going from data analyst into data scientist. So that was my first job where I was really full time doing machine learning, kind of end to end, you know, working with SQL, working with Python, building dashboards, and doing all, all of the work that comes with both data analysis and data science. There were several of us at the company. Um, it's a startup, uh, as you mentioned 
working with university analytics and we but we were each working independently so um, each of us were assigned to different clients and we were kind of working solo so since then we've transitioned into working more like a team centralizing our work sharing the results of our work and that's been a transition that i've been a part of and so you know throughout that i became the director of the new team so i'm the director of data science there's four of us on the team we call it DS Ops, which is data science operations, products, and services. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and I would love to maybe later hear a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on. Um, curious, though, about this transition into data science. If you were looking back to the Renee who was starting this journey, who was moving from that data analyst position and starting all of this self-teaching and so forth, do you have any advice that you would give to her for how this journey was going to go and things to do along the way? Yeah, I would mostly say things that I was already good at are the things that have really helped me in my role as a data scientist. So, you know, I felt a little bit out of my element and like I had so much to learn and I have learned a lot. Um, but, you know, being able to work with data, talk to people about the data, kind of work with stakeholders, explain the results of my analysis, talk to people at the you know, universities and colleges, talk to people on different teams within the company, that communication side um, really helped me, you know, move into a leadership role, work with the clients. And so it wasn't the technical piece that ended up being, um, you know, my strongest element, but those other aspects of having a career working with data, even if it wasn't in, in a machine learning type of capacity, really enhanced my ability to make myself valuable in my role and to you know, work with a lot of different teams. And so I guess, you know, to summarize the advice that you already have a lot of what you need. So, you know, don't worry too much. You'll, you'll get the technical skills. Um, those are easier to pick up, I think. And, and that's so interesting to hear you say, because I feel like for a lot of people, those technical skills would be really daunting. You know, the idea that, oh, you're going to teach yourself Python. You've taken on so much additional math that you've learned. Um, but I like hearing you say that really it was about recognizing your existing experience and strengths, it sounds like. Yeah, and also being able to eventually work with a team that really helped mm -hmm. because I can lean on others for some of the gaps in my knowledge. Um, I can learn techniques from other people. Um, you know, I've learned techniques as I've gone through my job. And, you know, I just try to encourage people that are daunted about getting into data science that there's so much you can learn on the job. And there's so much that no matter how much background work you do, you're going to learn more on the job anyway. So it's not like you're ever done learning to become a data scientist, and then you can be then you can get a job as one. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think that they have to learn all the topics on their list before they start applying for jobs. And there's really a huge need for people with probably the skills that you have now. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you can find a transitional role that lets you take advantage of the skills you already have and grow the skills while on the job, that's really a good setup if you can get into that kind of role. Perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. So as you were going through all of this learning, were there particular concepts or particular techniques as you were learning data science that just really stood out to you that were particularly exciting to you? Um, maybe an algorithm or an area of application where you were just like, oh, this is one of my favorite things now. <laughs> um, I think one thing that has become my like go-to algorithm is the random forest algorithm. So it was one that early on I was trying different techniques and, and that one just always worked well enough. So it might not have always been 
the top result, but it was never a bad result. And so that's has become kind of my go-to <laughs> algorithm, at least for the type of data that I work with. So I would say, you know, random forest is my favorite and, and my first technique that I try each time. But I would say just in terms of, of what's like exciting or interesting to me has been learning about all the different trade-offs that as you use each technique, there's so much iterative work and tuning that you have to do when you're doing machine learning and, and that every change you make makes some part of it better perform better and some part of it perform worse. And so learning about those techniques to like optimize and figure out what you're optimizing for, I think that has been some of the more interesting parts of, of the work and the learning beyond just, you know, running some code is how do you, there's some, a lot of nuance involved that I don't think a lot of people re realize before they get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love you saying that random forest is like your favorite go-to algorithm. I think we should all have like patches or lapel pins for our favorite algorithms or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so we can show them off. Yeah. Um, so as far as learning, you know, about optimization and all of the tuning options that you have, was that mainly a process of trial and error of working with your team and learning from others? What were some of the main ways that you developed that sort of deeper level of knowledge? Yeah, um, a little bit of each. I mean, I think a lot of it was just experience because you can read um, books and blog posts about different techniques, but different techniques work better for different types of data. And so developing that domain expertise of like what it's like to work with this type of data that I work with in my job, you know, categorical data and continuous variables and things like that, having lots of columns to go through and engineering features and, and how you know, doing each of those things on our specific type of data affects the outcome. It would be very different than somebody, for example, working with computer vision and a self-driving car. You know, that's also right, a type sure. of data science, but their work and what they would need to learn to make that work well and the, the um, types of algorithms they use and the type of code they write would be, you know, very different. So kind of specialized for the, the task at hand. Um, so yeah, learning optimization, a lot of it was trial and error and being surprised at things that worked. If I kind of automated a, a variety of different parameter, you know, looping through a bunch of different parameters or doing a grid search and seeing what ended up coming out on top, but then also kind of following my gut instinct in some cases and saying, well, if I change just this piece of it, how does that change the output and, and learning from experiencing it and from looking deeper at the data, like not just running a data set through my algorithm and ignoring, you know, what's in the data set. I think really understanding the data and where it come fr comes from and what your different transformations are doing to the data and what, what it means. That's really a part that I've learned is important and you can't just automate it all away. Yeah, yeah, that really speaks to the issues of both communicating with the people who are giving you data and learning all of that background and, and information to inform that process, but then also sounds like exploratory data analysis as well, you know, mm -hmm. not ignoring that yes. part of the process, not jumping right to the favorite algorithms. Absolutely. That's a really important part of the process. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So was there something kind of on the flip side now? Was there something that was extra challenging for you as you were going through your learning process? Yeah, I think the thing that's most challenging for me, at least, for example, in my master's degree, I took some courses that were taught by people in math departments, some in engineering, some in computer science, and the notation was different for each of them. Gosh. So learning how to read 
mathematical texts and understand notation is still a challenge for me now. So I would say that's the most challenging part. Like, I think I can get the concepts. And if somebody explains it to me, I get the hang of it. Like, okay, I understand why you would do that and what the approach is. But then, you know, reading it in text form with these equations that have different notation and like matrix calculus and things like that, that's probably the most challenging piece for me. Yeah, for sure. I know I've had a, a, at various points, different cheat sheets printed out for notation just so that I could look at it and be like, okay, yes, let me translate this into normal words. <laughs> and so, because my background yeah. is not in math. So yeah, definitely that is, mm -hmm. that is an obstacle to learning, but one that can be overcome. So that's encouraging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier too, though, that as you have moved into data science, your learning isn't over, right? You are continuing to learn right. and develop new things. But now you're also working full time doing data science and being mm -hmm. a director, right? And taking on all these bigger projects. So how are you balancing now that continuing learning with your full time everyday work? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm lucky that my work requires some of the learning and so I can do that learning on the job. Um, I do not make a lot of time for learning projects anymore on the weekends. I used to do that a lot when I was first learning um, data science. At this point, you know, I learn what I need to learn for the work. And, you know, I'm lucky that I get to make that time at work. So it's just a normal part of doing my job is that I expect to have to learn new things. I expect that when I, um, you know, make a timeline for a new project that I have to build in time for learning new techniques or talking to colleagues and finding out how they would approach it and integrating different approaches. And now we're working more as a team. And so we're each contributing techniques to kind of a central repository. And so we can more quickly access and learn from what people have done on previous projects. So I, it's a very project-based learning for me. I mean, even when I was learning on my own before, I don't learn well by just taking a class or going through a textbook. I have to have a reason for doing the learning. Right, and so right. having a, a project that I'm excited about and a data set that's interesting to me makes it easier to learn the technique and then understand if I'm doing it right based on the outcome, because it's you know a data set that I, I understand the context and it's not completely foreign to me where I wouldn't know if there was the right answer or not. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, certainly having some sort of project with a, a set goal and a deadline. Deadlines are always helpful you know, from experience. <laughs> That's um, true. You know, being able to, it makes yeah. your learning more efficient because then you'll only learn what you need to for the project. Right, right, right. And stay focused on it. Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious about the, the central repository for sharing knowledge mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Is that something you can tell us a little more about? Oh, um, so just basically starting to use Git more as a team so that when we change our techniques or learn new projects, we can share that. Also within our group, one of my team members has built a framework so that we can start standardizing our approach. And so as we use new techniques, we can integrate that into the framework so that we all have access to each other's approaches and techniques. So um, it's just something that I've decided, you know, as a director that is something that would be really useful to have, not only with our current team members, but when you onboard somebody to new, new to say, you know, here's our typical way of doing things. But if you have a new way to do it, you can also contribute. I think it helps get people up to speed more quickly. And it's a benefit I didn't have when I was starting out that I wish I did, you know, being able to sure, lean on sure. other data scientists in the team. And so it's something I really prioritize, but it's really just making sure that we can all access each other's work and that we share that on a regular basis. So when we have our, our weekly meetings, um, our team meetings, we talk about 
different approaches that we're we're taking to doing solving problems that we've been presented with. And then we also have a monthly data science roundtable where we present not only to other data scientists, but to the whole company. Anyone that wants to come can see um, what we're currently working on, what approach we took, how the clients have responded to it. So, you know, sometimes you can do something that you think looks really cool, but the clients don't understand it. And so um, being able to communicate the results to the clients is also important. So not just technical techniques, but presentation techniques and um, dashboard design and things like that we also share. Yeah, I can understand definitely that communicating with clients and getting them to understand the technical details, but also the the main takeaways of your projects could be challenging. So I know one of the big things that you have focused on in your, your public communications about data science has been demystifying data science and talking about those concepts really clearly. So do you have a couple of your, your top tips for helping people who are also working on that skill, who want to be able to communicate about data science more clearly? Sure. I gave a presentation at a conference about this recently where I had started out, um, I kind of pitched the idea of giving a presentation about making presentations and saying, here are some tips for that final presentation. But as I was developing it, I realized all my tips were really about communicating throughout the project and not waiting until that final presentation in order to you know, get people on board. And so I changed my whole presentation to be about communicating about the project up front. So I really think that it starts with um, how you work with the you know, stakeholders throughout the whole project, how you define what the deliverable is, explain what you're working on, and then kind of bring them along with you. So when we do exploratory data analysis at Helio Campus, we have regular meetings with the end users at the institutions. And so we show them, here's what we're finding. Does this make sense? Does this you know, go along with what you expected or is it surprising to you? And if it's surprising, we need to check to make sure that we're correct. And that could be an interesting finding. Sometimes we find out that there's something wrong with the data and that it was surprising because it's wrong and it's better to find out early. So as we go through that communication cycle with the client, then by the time we get to the machine learning piece, they know what inputs are going into the model. We talk about the most important features when we um, generate the scores and we deliver the scores in context. So we're not just giving a number. It's not just black box. And so when the end users see those results, they understand it already. So when we're doing our final presentation, um, even if the presentation includes people that weren't a part of the process, we have like allies on the team that can explain it in their terms and, you know, to other people on their campus of what we did, you know, why we made certain choices and why the results came out the way we did. So we kind of already have the buy-in and the understanding before we get to that final presentation. That's great. I I love that idea of kind of building your support crew into the process and then having them ready to help um, with that explanation and presumably implementation as well once your your project is complete. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. So are there a couple of projects that you are able to share with us? Yeah, sure. So um, we're doing a lot of different predictive models that are around understanding like processes at the institution or what factors at the institutions are most associated with certain outcomes. So for example, 
for student retention. A lot of schools are interested in for students that start as first-time, full-time freshmen that are degree-seeking, and we have to define it like that. We're not just saying students, right. you know, it has to be a certain yeah. set of students. What factors for those students seem to be most correlated with their retention, meaning they're still enrolled a year later? So there's a lot of schools are, are measured by that retention rate. It's a big metric that they're measured by. And of course, you want the students to stay enrolled and to move towards their degree. So the first step towards getting a degree is to, you know, get your first year under your belt and, and end up with enough credits to continue and have a good outcome. So we've done different projects with data all the way from, um, you know, admissions to financial aid to enrollment and course outcomes and being able to explore all the details and then correlate that with whether the student retained or not. So it ends up being a simple binary classification model with a lot of different inputs that are interesting to explore. And then talking to the institutions about potential policy changes or interventions that they could do to help more students get to that one-year retention and measuring if they make a change, how does that change retention rates or how do the students respond? So it's definitely interesting work to be able to get data from all the different points in a student's life cycle and highlight what seems to be working well. Yeah, very interesting. My, my own background was in academia prior to joining Alteryx, and I actually just interviewed someone else who does work with data in higher ed. And one of the unexpected factors that she mentioned was parking permits. And I thought that was super yeah. interesting as a potential factor for retention. So I imagine you see some surprises along the way as well. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, um, you know, something like that is not data that all schools have easily accessible. And so what we tend to do is start with a type of model framework that takes into account the most common variables that most institutions have. And then we'll talk to the stakeholders and find out, you know, are there other pieces of information like surveys or data from parking permits or door swipes, you know, at the library Right, <laughs> um, right. that could be informational. And so we'll work with the institutions to kind of join that data into our standard data set. Um, but, you know, not every school has that data at that level or, you know, has a way to make it easily accessible and refreshable. So uh, building a pipeline is, is part of the project as well. So instead of doing a one-off piece of research, we're really trying to build um, a pipeline to be able to monitor these different pieces of information over time. So, yeah, special pieces of information like that are really useful, but it's often hard to get them um, in a frequently refreshed way that is accessible for a lot of different models and experimentation and can be updated over time and to have enough past history to train your model right so a lot of times yeah. the schools will come to us and say oh we have this cool new piece of information well you just started collecting it this semester so we don't mm -hmm. have the history yeah. in which to train the model on and that goes back to that communication piece then i imagine then having to explain how models are trained and why you know mm -hmm. six months of data might not be enough to do the kinds of predictions they're interested in absolutely and that's another tip i would give is we have a presentation that we give at the beginning of the project to all the stakeholders about what the process is going to look like and like how we do exploratory data analysis what we're looking for how we have to check to see if the data is available, you know, far enough back in time, if the trends are consistent. And so the data, you know, the field is good for training a model because it hasn't changed meaning dramatically over time, um, you know, over the time that we're using for the, the training set. Um, and then now we're doing communication about how major changes like COVID have affected our models and affect the results. So 
the, the communication piece and giving them an expectation up front about what the process is going to look like does really help. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about what you're seeing as far as the effects of COVID on um, university's mm-hmm. data and how some of the ways that you might sure. be accommodating that? Yeah, well, what we found out when we looked back at models that, um, for example, were built in 2019 to predict 2020 outcomes, we saw that the models sometimes overestimated like the, the rates or the likelihoods, but the factors were still the same. So a model might have anticipated that a lot more students would enroll than did, but the things that were keeping them from enrolling, such as financial aid issues or academic issues, were still the same and had the same impact. There were a few changes and we had to you know, kind of dig in and understand. For example, at one institution, the nursing program suddenly had much higher retention than usual. And at that time, you know, nursing was in the news and nurses were in high demand. So it was really interesting to find that we had to dig in. And that was another thing that was part of, you know, explaining that process and having a transparent model. We were able to dig into the specific factors instead of just saying your numbers are wrong. We could say why they were wrong and in what way um, and better understand how things had changed, what were the impacts. Or for students where we didn't know why the change um, happened in certain groups, we can then seek more information and say, hey, our model is missing some component because it started performing really well for this particular, or performing poorly for this particular group, um, and we don't know why. So we need more information, or you know, it might highlight something that the school doesn't um, even collect or that we're not aware of, like a student's family situation or working outside of campus. So there were a a lot of things that were highlighted by COVID, but for the most part, the models held up in terms of the things that were predictive. They just struggled in terms of scale. Oh, and one other thing that is becoming a challenge going forward, now that 2020 is going to be part of the training data going forward, the question is, how do we include that data Should we leave it out as like an anomaly year? Are things going to permanently change or go back to normal? And one thing that's proving challenging is that GPAs are usually predictive for a lot of things, you know, retention, graduation rates, and things like that. And a lot of schools went to pass-fail grades for at least one semester. And so the GPA distribution has changed dramatically, or we just lost information about um, a student-specific grade. So though it might have helped the student have, you know, they're more comfortable with passes on their transcript instead of maybe a lower letter grade than they would have liked. That is going to provide, prove challenging to the actual modeling because that's a major piece of information that we won't have. And so we have to think of things like maybe we'll translate all the past grades into pass fail and see if we can include the pass fail and, and make it useful. Or maybe we leave 2020 out of the training data and just treat it like an anomaly. So we're going to have to figure that out as we go forward. But because our models are transparent and we have that depth of domain knowledge, um, we can make those decisions in an informed way. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. It reminds me of something that I talked about in um, the interview for Inspire, actually, with Alberto Cairo, where we talked about data seeming very sciencey and objective. And to some degree, right, we can find things in data that we might not expect, like what you said about the nursing program suddenly having such high mm-hmm. retention. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you do have to make those kinds of decisions like, well, maybe an A is going to have to just be coded as a pass for this particular model, and we just go with that. 
And it's interesting to hear you talk about the, the depth of subject matter expertise being really important for making those kinds of decisions. Yeah, um, humans definitely make a lot of decisions through the process that influence the outcome. People do like to think of machine learning as like, well, a, a computer can't be biased, it's just doing math. But people decide what data to collect, how to transform that data, what subsets of the population you're building the model for. If somebody decides to opt out and you can't use their data, then, you know, let's say a lot of people in one demographic all have opted out. Well, your model may now not represent that demographic at all. And so what does that mean for the performance? People make decisions on what factors to include, what algorithms to use, what to optimize for, what performance metric are you optimizing for, and then how to apply the results of the model. You know, what do you yeah. do with this information in the end? So even though, yes, technically computers are doing math to, you know, uh, your data is going through an algorithm and, and there's not, you know, human bias in the algorithm. The, there's so many human choices made along the way that the output absolutely can include human biases. For sure. For sure. Any other projects that you wanted to talk about that you're doing right now? Not specific projects, but an area that I'm really excited to do some new exploration in is what I just talked about with um, bias in machine learning and understanding the um, effects of our models and where they're performing well and where they're not. So mm -hmm. my team recently attended a conference related to the fairness and accountability and transparency in machine learning. And, you know, you hope to pick up some techniques that will just solve all the problems and remove all the concern. And it really brings up more questions than solutions, you know, when you attend something like that. But there's really exciting research going on in the field about ways to address bias or to detect bias. And so that's an area I'm really interested to continue to learn more about and to, to make sure that we're using techniques in our models to make sure that we're not perpetuating, you know, certain biases. And also kind of hand in hand with that and related to, to projects at work, we do a lot of communication with the client about, you know, how to use models and how not to use models or when we shouldn't build a model for something. Right. Um, so for example, if the data isn't as robust as we need to really get a good out, outcome, you know, should we be building that model when the data is not really in the shape we need? Or just because somebody's asking for an algorithm or an analysis do you do it exactly the way they want, or do you kind of consult and explain why one approach is better than the other? And so we're working a lot on that kind of communication about how models and the results of models should be used. And, and of course, most of our clients are totally on board and, you know, people don't want to harm the students. Um, but just making sure that we're documenting things, that's a big project for us now, so that as people that we haven't worked with in the future start using the results of these models that we built, you know, in the past, we understand when it should be retrained, you know, how well the model's performing, uh, what the model was built for and what's included um, in the model, and then what the prediction means um, so it doesn't get massively misinterpreted later on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All really important issues that you've brought up there, and I think things that everybody <laughs> is struggling with um, around bias and accountability and documentation, right? Those are ongoing struggles, I think, in a lot of areas, but maybe particularly weighty in, in your field. So yeah, it's super interesting to hear you talk about that. So we have one question yeah. that we always ask on Data Science Mixer to our guests, and mm -hmm. I'll ask it to you now. So the, we call this little segment, the alternative hypothesis. 
And the question is, what is something that people think is true about data science or about being a data scientist, but that you have actually found to be incorrect? Yeah, so the biggest myth that I see is people think you need to learn everything before you can call yourself a data scientist. And there's no such thing as learning everything. <laughs> I've, I mean, I'm years into this and my bookmark list of things to learn has gotten longer and not shorter. <laughs> that uh, makes me feel better. <laughs> so yeah, learning the basics and understanding how to evaluate models and understanding the statistics behind what you're doing so that you can, you know, understand what you've just created is really important. And understanding the data going into your model and having that, that domain knowledge is really important. Um, but you don't have to know every technique. Uh, I mean, for example, I don't work with images. I don't work with natural language processing in my current job. So I don't have any depth of expertise or techniques that other than the very most introductory basic techniques in those areas. So if I were asked to build a model related to that or to you know work with an institution that wanted that type of analysis, I would have to lean on someone else's expertise. But with the skills that I have, I've been able to develop depth in the area that is needed for my role. And it's really not as expansive as a lot of people expect going in. So I would say that's the biggest myth. You know, you could really find a subset of skills that you want to become good at. If there's a certain industry you want to go into, make sure you have that domain knowledge and kind of specialize. So learn a lot of basics learn a lot of depth in a specific area, but you can't and shouldn't expect to develop depth in all areas. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> That's good to hear. And I think that will be very reassuring to a lot of folks who, you know, I think we've seen, for example, just what's offered in online training courses and so forth, just expand mm -hmm. and expand and expand. It's like, oh, how can anyone human yeah. ever conquer all of this, right? It's it's huge. It's overwhelming. So, yeah, <laughs> but yes, you sure. don't have to. You don't have Yay. to conquer all of that. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to get in there while we have this opportunity to chat? The only thing I've been thinking about lately that I think might be interesting for people to think about that um, is less of an issue when I was a data analyst, but has become, you know, kind of forefront as a data scientist is that all of your choices are trade-offs with modeling. Mm -hmm. So when you are evaluating models, you know, you'll see a, a typical evaluation of a classification model as a confusion matrix. So you have, you know, your true positives and true negatives and false positives and false negatives. And just knowing that every choice you make to optimize for one of those things will necessarily affect one of the other things and understanding, right. you know, what to optimize for. For example, in our retention models, we might not want we might sacrifice overall accuracy in order to improve the negative class recall if the purpose of the model is to address potential issues with retention. So if you're trying to find students that might need an intervention and might need a special tutoring or might need extra financial aid, you don't want your model to miss them. So you might build your model so you know you might have more false negatives but it allows you to address potential issues rather than the most accurate model that misses a lot of students that you know potentially have a likelihood of of not continuing with their education so just understanding the decisions and that every decision you make affects the model outcome in some way and that those outcomes have real world impact um it's just a lot more to think about in that area than i initially expected and you know, when you're doing your practice, 
models and, and learning if you're trying to become a data scientist, playing around with that and not just optimizing for the most accurate model with right. the overall accuracy, but understanding those different metric evaluation metrics and explaining why you might choose one over the other. That's a really good skill to develop. And it would sound good in an interview if, if you were asked about it right. and you can really go into depth about that. Cause it's something I, I didn't think about before I was doing this on the job. And um, I think a lot of people miss in the learning phase, but become so important in the real world applications. Absolutely. And, and there's so much nuance there that comes with experience and it's nuance that has real world consequences. I mean, for example, with you talking mm -hmm. about students who might need an intervention so that they continue in college, I mean, that's a pretty mm -hmm. real life consequence for that particular individual and then on a larger scale for the institution. So super important thing to be thinking yeah. about. Yeah, interesting. Well, Renee, thank you so much for joining us on Data Science Mixer. I think you've shared a lot of insights that people are going to be able to immediately take to their own studying and their own career growth and a lot of really interesting examples of stuff that you're working on that will inspire them. So thank you so much for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our Data Science Mixer chat with Renee Teat. Join us on the Alteryx community for this week's cocktail conversation to share your thoughts. Here's our conversation starter this week. I mentioned earlier that maybe we data people should have badges or lapel pins for our favorite algorithms. What would your lapel pin look like for your favorite algorithm? Draw it on a sheet of paper or doodle it on your tablet and post a pic. Share with our community by leaving a comment directly on the episode page at community.alterix.com podcast, or post on social media with the hashtag data science mixer and tag Alteryx. Cheers.